good to be with you. Thank you for being here this morning, and if you are watching online, we want to say thank you for joining us for church as well. We have a great morning of worship in store, and we're going to get to hear from God's Word, so we're super thankful to have everybody here. This is our second week of in-person services, and man, it's just been such a blessing to have you here, so thank you for being here. Uh, Like we've said before, we want to make sure this is a place where we come together and our focus is on the Lord and His Word. And so that's what it's going to be this morning. Uh, Thank you for coming in. Thank you for registering. Thank you for greeting each other. And so perhaps this morning you've come and, man, you are really excited to be here. Perhaps you've come this morning and you are really hoping to hear from the Lord. Perhaps this morning you've come and your desire is just to be around people, to connect with other people. I believe the Lord can meet all those needs this morning for us. And so we want to direct our full attention now to worshiping him, to hearing his word be taught, and then to allow him to use that in our lives to grow us closer to him. We're so glad that you are here. Let's uh, turn our attention to worship. Good morning. How are we doing, church? We doing good? Amen. Let's have you stand. We're going to worship together.
is the Lamb. And worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Worthy is the King who conquered the grave. So shall it be. Amen. This is right out of Revelation 1. So just remember that he's coming on the clouds and kings and kingdoms will bow down. And every chain will break his broken hearts declare his praise. For who can stop the Lord Almighty? The God is the lion, the lion of Judah. He's roaring with power and fighting our battles. Every knee will bow before him. The God is the lamb, the lamb that was slain. For the sins of the world, his blood breaks the chain. Every
That is our hope. Uh, this is many of our stories right here. It goes like this. It says, And I searched the world But he couldn't feel me Man's empty praise and treasures of faith I never knew Then you came along Put me back together, yeah. Every desire is now satisfied, and hearing you learn. Oh, 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 there's nothing that's better than you. Oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's Oh, 
Father, we stand here because of what you've done and what your son has done for us. And we are thankful to know that our names are written in the book of life for those of us who have looked on Jesus and said yes. God, I would pray that you would help us to be those in our daily lives that people would see that in us. We know that the world around us is dying and it's growing darker and it's becoming more and more confused. People are looking for something real, and we have the answer, God. I pray that you'd help us to reach out to those coworkers, to our classmates, to our friends, to our neighbors, whoever it is that you've called us and placed us specifically to be those hands and feet, to minister to and to share good news. I pray that you'd help us now to hear from your word so we might be shored up and ready to go out and do what you've called us to do this week. In Christ's name, amen. Well, good morning. <laughs> this has been uh, a bit of a fun rodeo this morning behind the curtain, all right? 
And I know uh, the famous line, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, but uh, when you uh, came in the church this morning, if you're uh, sitting here with us, uh, you came in through doors that actually had uh, tiny little hinges. Anybody notice that? I'm getting literally dressed in front of you here on live <laughs> TV. Little tiny hinges, it's amazing uh, that those doors can protect a building, they can shut things out, they're strong, but strong, large doors often turn on tiny hinges. We talk about that when it comes to prayer, major moments, that's what's uh, happening in this section of the book of Acts that we're in, uh, but also uh, just for everything to happen right for us uh, this morning, um, there's little tiny video cards and things like that that also need to be um, working right in order for everything to be seen and be heard. And so if, uh, if you're with us right now on um, live at home uh, or in any other place, uh, surprise, okay? <laughs> the video cards were down for uh, the early part of that. And so in order for us to be able to minister to other people, uh, we need tiny things to go right. I'm going to focus at the very beginning here on prayer so that we can focus our whole attention on Acts chapter 18. Is that okay? Let's, uh, let's pray. Father God, we come to you and, uh, man, there are all kinds of things that can get in the way of your word. And we're just aware of that this morning, that uh, your enemy would love for us to just uh, forget a week, take a week off. Uh, or even get distracted by minutiae, tiny details, little tiny things that can get in the way of big truths. But I'm convinced uh, that in this transition section in the book of Acts, but also in this transition season that we're in as a church, there are things that we are supposed to learn that if we do not get these lessons right, the next stage will not be successful. So, Father, we're in a phase right now. Home church uh, at church is over. We're now in live moments. We ask you to bless that. Draw us. Cause us to still feel like family. To have our hearts full of worship and our, our desires shaped by the word. But we pray also, Father, that you would continue to draw people to yourself. Um, we're one church among many who are trying to get the gospel out. We pray, Father, that you'd make us effective in this season where truth is scarce. So we ask that you'd guide us in Christ's name. Amen. Well, with that ominous beginning, I would like you to turn to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18, we're in a, a series we're calling Christianity on the Grow. We have this week and next week in that uh, series. And then the book of Acts actually begins to change direction and focus just on Paul's finishing statements. And so this is the section where we see the church growing the most. Uh, Acts chapter 18, um, as I was listening to a couple of different pre preachers preach on it, this is the section that they most often skipped, all right? Section uh, 18 through just uh, right up to the beginning of chapter 19, it seems like there's so many common things happen uh, that they just skip over it. But I believe that the Spirit of God actually inspired Luke to write this chapter down because there are some critical ingredients in here that need to be a part of every single New Testament church in order for us to be able to carry on the next phase. When Paul is off the scene and church is church, these ingredients need to be evident uh, in a New Testament church in order uh, for it to be successful. So we're going to look at four critical matters. Now, because we're covering an entire chapter all the way through 19, uh, verse 9, I'm going to read a section of Scripture here at the very beginning, and I'm going to ask us to dial into that, and then we'll read another section partway through. Okay? Is that all right? Uh, yes goes there. All right? I know it was muffled. <laughs> we're going to do it right now. I know we're just... Uh, this is... What happens when we wake up an hour earlier? <laughs> Acts chapter 18, we're going to look at verses, uh, actually 1 through 10. Let's stand as we read this section together. It says this, 
And after this, he left Athens and went to Corinth, talking about Paul, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because of Claudius, who had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and he worked. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and to testify to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus a worshiper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in a night vision, Do not be afraid, but keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. No one will lay a hand on you to hurt you, because I have many people in this city. And do you believe that actually happened? It did. You may be seated. We're looking at uh, this first section here, and I just want you to notice a couple of things. This morning, we're going to look at four critical matters that are necessary to have a New Testament church. And the first thing that I want you to notice in this passage is that evangelism matters. Now, it would uh, be an assumption of yours in the book of Acts that evangelism matters because every single chapter is filled with somebody doing crazy things in order to evangelize the lost. But as central as the book of Acts is to this transition period and setting up what churches are to be about, when you look at churches in our age, evangelism is quite often missing. Evangelism is missing. If you look around our nation where evangelism used to be a central part, you would actually teach evangelism. There were schools of evangelism in the United States. All the schools of evangelism have closed except for one. There's one place where you can be trained specifically in evangelism. That's Multnomah up in Portland right now. In all the rest of the U.S., if you go to be trained specifically to be an evangelist, you would have to find some secondary way to get qualified. What this passage reminds us is that evangelism matters. And I want you to specifically to hone in on one thing that Paul says that is a little shocking to us uh, because of its boldness, but it is the reason that I highlight this first. It says in verse 6, when they resisted and blasphemed, that just means that they looked at him and said that the works that you are doing are of Satan. The works that you are doing are not of God. When they saw what Paul was speaking, they actually maligned the Word of God in order to get out from under the Word of God. So they're blaspheming, and he shook out his clothes and told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul's words here highlight the urgency of evangelism. Now, I want you to know, just like we've closed our schools of evangelism, we in the church have assumed that the world is disinterested, and therefore we don't offer Christ. But do you know that's actually not the case even in the Northwest? In a place where atheism is on the rise, agnosticism is on the rise, people are still interested in Christ. They're still interested in Jesus. They are desiring to know, how is it that I can know the God of the universe and finally be at peace? They want that truth. We've assumed that they're disinterested, and we have refused to share. There was a young psych student that was actually in the army, and he was a part of uh, distributing food to all of the men, and he noticed that nobody liked apricots. They wouldn't take apricots as they were going, and he watched how people were uh, going, about, uh, going about offering apricots to the men, and he said, you know what, this would be a great test subject for a psychology paper. So we actually did a study on how to offer apricots to men that are in the army, all right? He offered it three different ways. The first group, he said, you don't want apricots, do you? And 90% of them said, no, I don't. Then he began to say, you want apricots, don't you? 
And what he found was that 50% of the people that he said, you want apricots, don't you? They actually accepted the apricots, half of them. But then finally, the third group, he said, do you want one serving of apricots or two? And what he found was that 50% of them took one serving, 40% took two servings, only 10% refused the apricots. When you assume disinterest, of course nobody wants it. Here's a big difference, though. Salvation is so much more important than apricots. Salvation is of critical importance, but I do think our mindset is also important. Do you honestly believe that nobody wants Jesus? Just pause. In your own heart, is the reason that you're not sharing Christ in those opportune moments when you could be sharing Christ, is it because you believe they don't want Christ? Is it possibly because you believe they don't want the Christ you've been putting on display? What is your reason for being disinterested in sharing? Paul actually says instead of it being about whether or not you like or dislike something, this isn't a flavor of ice cream I'm offering you. This is eternal life. Hell is real, and I see with urgency, and there's a flame in his eyes. You are headed to a place where you will never see God for all eternity, and the one that you were created and meant are meant to enjoy will not be yours for all eternity. Please, please will you turn. Please will you come to me. Please will you respond to this gospel. He has an urgency that's written on his face, and it was filling up his soul. In fact, he begins to quote Ezekiel chapter 3, Two times God comes to Ezekiel and tells him a warning like this. And he says these words to Ezekiel that Paul is echoing. Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 16, it says, Now at the end of seven days the word of the Lord came to me and said, Son of man, I have made you a watchman over the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, give them a warning from me. If I say to that wicked person, you surely will die, but you do not warn him, and you don't speak out to warn him about the wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person will die for his iniquity, but I will hold you responsible for his blood. If you warn a wicked person and he does not turn from the wickedness of his way, he will die for his iniquity, but you will have rescued yourself. Verse 20, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and he begins to act unjustly, and I put a stumbling block in front of him. He will die. If you do not warn him, he will die because of his sin and righteous acts that he did will not be remembered, but I will hold you responsible for his blood. But if you warn the righteous person that he should not sin and he does not sin, he will indeed live because he listened to your warning and you will have rescued yourself. What is Paul looking at? He says with the same kind of urgency as if I'm a watchman on a hill and I see that there is a marauding group that is coming towards us with their swords out and they're about to attack the city. If I just sit down and say, well, I probably better eat this sandwich. It's going to be my last. That's bad. That's what he says. Paul says with all of the urgency that you would run to the city and tell them they're on their way, there's danger that's coming, we ought to be warning these folks. So he tells them with all the urgency in his soul, this is the truth, please respond. And when they didn't respond, he shook off the dust from his clothes. He says, I don't want anything from you. He warns them and he goes away. Charles Spurgeon Famously said, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled at the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. Do you agree with him? There was an urgency to it. Evangelism matters. But there's something else I want you to notice in this passage that is critical, and that is that your calling matters. You personally, your calling. It says that Paul, when he came to them, um, since he was of the same occupation, began tent making with Priscilla and Aquila. He stayed with them in work, and verse 4, he reasoned in the synagogue 
Every Sabbath, one day a week, Paul was able to go and reason with them. Look at verse 5. It says, Then when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. He goes from part-time, every so often, to full-time, all the time, trying to convince people that they must respond. Why does that change happen? Because these two encouragers and supporters showed up so that the work could be advanced. How awesome would it be to be the person that was there to fill the sails and push along the Apostle Paul in that work? Silas and Timothy brought provision and encouragement. And the question I would have for you this morning is, what is your role? What is your role in the body of Christ? And I, and I want to convince you of something. It's not let's taste and see if we'll enjoy it this week, right? It's kind of like coming to... Uh, the family. If you're just there for what's going on in the kitchen, you taste it a little bit. If you like it, you stay. If not, you go somewhere else. You're probably not family. Families participate in every aspect of chores and life together, not just the meal. What is your role? From time to time, I get captivated with uh, the America's Cup. It's a sailboat race that goes on. Uh, the very first race happened in the 1800s. It was over a $100 bet that one captain's boat was faster than another captain's boat. And it's gotten crazy since then. Year after year, they spend more and more money. Uh, the speeds get ridiculous. In fact, I just saw uh, a video file from San Francisco where they were trying to go out in a speedboat and keep up with the America's Cup sailboat as it was out on doing maneuvers, practicing how fast they were going. And by the time they got to 47 knots, 55 miles an hour on there, the boat that they were in with the camera crew couldn't keep up with a sailboat that was going two and a half times the speed of the wind in the harbor. 55 miles an hour. But the cost to build a boat that fast and that sophisticated is ridiculous. This last America's Cup, $300 million to $500 million, almost half a billion dollars was spent in order to win a prize. And the boat that they built and began to sail capsized halfway through one of the races. They flooded it with salt water. It wasn't able to finish. $500 million, literally down the drain. The commitment is ridiculous. Only Olympic caliber people are able to be called what, they're, what they call grinders. They, they just are in there churning one direction and then another to get the sails to turn perfectly and have the boat move from one direction to another. But also the coordination is ridiculous. In order to be somebody that's on one of these boats, see these guys hanging over there to make sure that that thing just has the right amount of balance? At 55 miles an hour, I get inside the boat. <laughs> is that crazy? Look at this guy up in the front. I'm not sure if he's falling out or just checking to see if there's a barnacle under there. <laughs> These guys are flying. One of the most comical things that I've seen, though, is in this last race as they were down in New Zealand, they had a whole group of guys in there grinding, moving uh, sheets from one side to the other. They had so much sophistication and so much speed that the one captain almost got blown off the boat. So they have a captain one on each side for the... UAE, they have a captain on each side because they didn't want the guy to fall off the boat uh, during maneuvers. And then I look, and in the back of this basically looks like a cockpit, there's a dude with an iPad. And it looks like he's playing, you know, Pokemon or something. He's in the back, and all these other guys are working and moving and talking and John, and he's just looking at a screen. And on it is weather and all these different kinds of things. And, and he begins to tell them, we need to tack this way just a little bit. We need to move this way just a little bit. There is no unimportant job on the ship. In fact, the ridiculous assumption is that in order to win America's Cup, all you need is a good captain. Paul's ministry was enhanced and magnified first by the Spirit of God. He got it by anointing. Amen? But then every advance that is made, you see people that are around him, an army of the anonymous that are funding and helping and preparing and moving it forward. And by the way, that's a model for the church today. 
If you came here today and you don't believe that you have an important role, you haven't trained up the gift that God gave you and said, I am invested in what God is about to do, you need to pray. You've got to invest. You've got to take a look at what it is that God has actually called you to participate in, and you have to know that your role is as critical to advancing the church as anything that happens on the stage. Are you aware of that? None of all of this happens without many hands dedicated to the Lord, not to an individual or to a place. It's so that we can advance the gospel. Your calling matters. And I would have you pause and think, what is your calling? It's not a negotiable thing. God called you and gifted you, and you are a critical part of advancing the gospel. But there's a, a fourth thing that we see. I want you to turn now to the end of chapter 18, starting with verse 24. And we're introduced to Apollos, and then at the beginning of 19, a group of people, and they both have the same problem. It says this, verse 24, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, an eloquent man who was competent in the use of the Scriptures, arrived at Ephesus. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, being fervent in spirit, and he was speaking and teaching accurately about Jesus, although he only knew about John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. After Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained the way of God to him more accurately. That's an important phrase. When he wanted to cross over to Achaia, the brothers and sisters wrote the disciples and welcomed him. He arrived and was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. When Apollos was in Corinth, Paul traveled through interior regions and came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well, into what then were you baptized, he asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him. That is, in Jesus. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. And they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now there were about 12 men in all. Now why in the world we would skip this passage, I don't know. It's a super interesting passage of Scripture. The last two points for this morning come right out of this. And starting in verse 24, we meet a, a man named Apollos. And I want you to see that in a New Testament church, discipleship matters. It says that he was fervent in spirit, but he was untrained. He did not know the truth about Christ. But after he's taken aside, he goes and vigorously, vigorously refutes the Jews in public, demonstrating through the scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah. That was the result of his discipleship training. He was fervent but he wasn't quite there. Now, we've done, we've done something over the years. This is uh, an illustration that I've used before, but I think it is important for us to wrap our minds around this right now this morning. I'm going to ask you just a question. What does this company make? So what does this company make? Cars. There we go. Yes. The uh does not need to precede it. You can just shout it out, okay? Cars. What does this company make? Yes, and money. Uh, what does this company make? Hamburgers. Hamburgers. Yes, that's right. And an entire American culture. What does this company make? Disciples would be the right word, right? Yes. Yeah, we could clap for that. That's right. That's the answer. Folks, here's, here's the one concern that we would have. For churches, actually across America, it is confusing. What is it that we're making? What is the platform that we're about? There's all kinds of political things that people think the church is supposed to be about. The church is supposed to be about making disciples. 
It says that when Jesus commissions them at the very beginning. It's the announcement at the beginning of the book of Acts. It is the policy of every single church leader all the way through the book of Acts. And it is central here to getting a good man to become a great man. It's discipleship. But it takes humility to grow deep. To have almost the truth and allow somebody to come alongside you and give you the full truth is hard. But now imagine you're a man from Alexandria. This was the place that had all of the learning. This is the place where all of the professors of Cambridge and Yale and Harvard and Oxford went to get their schooling, okay? They went to Alexandria. He is coming from the center of knowledge, from the place where all of these great teachers are coming from, great orators are coming from this location. And he's heard about Christ and he, or about the gospel and he's been convinced, but he doesn't fully know the truth. And he runs into a bunch of people, Priscilla and Aquila, two people who got kicked out of Rome and have no other credentials other than they believed in Jesus. And they're like, man, you are brilliant. You can speak. You have all of this. But can we show you a few things from Scripture that will make it more accurate? How much humility does it take for a person of great learning and great intellect to learn from those who have been trained by fishermen? Faithful truth matters. Right now there's a plague in the United States, and it's called progressive Christianity. Five marks, uh, Elisa Childers has put out, uh, five marks that you might be a part of a progressive church. And the first one is that uh, in a progressive church, there is a low view of the Bible. You might hear statements like, well, the Bible is a human book or a book written by humans, or the Bible contains the Word of God. But a low view of Scripture is an almost truth. Secondly, in a progressive church, feelings are emphasized over facts. By the way, all of the notes, once again, if you have the QR code in front, you can just, on your phone, be able to pick those up. This stuff will be appended there. But in a progressive church, feelings are emphasized over facts. You might hear phrases like, the Bible doesn't resonate with me, or I can't believe that Jesus would send good people to hell. Three, a progressive church, essential Christian doctrines are open for reinterpretation. You might hear statements like, the resurrection of Jesus doesn't have to be factual to speak the truth. Or the church's historic position on sexuality is archaic and needs to be updated with a modern framework. By the way, every single age has had some take on Christianity or on those truths where they say now we finally arrived and all of those ages have passed and we've assumed that we've progressed beyond it, do you know that the thinking of this age will also someday be seen as archaic by the culture? But Christ remains the same. Fourth sign you're a part of a progressive church is that historic terms are redefined. God wouldn't punish sinners. He is love. Or it's not your job to talk to anyone about sin. It's just our job to love them. Fifth, in a progressive church, the heart of the gospel message shifts from sin and redemption, sin and redemption to social justice. We don't really need to preach the gospel. We just need to show them love and bring justice to the oppressed and provision to the needy. Now, why do I feel free to speak so boldly about that in our church? Because we actually do send provision to the needy. Do you know that? Our church actually takes time to be hands and feet, to be active in the streets, to actually have a presence with those who are lost. But we believe that the only thing that will set people free, stand them on their feet and give them hope for eternity, is Jesus Christ, not us. It's about him. It's about his work. It's about what is finished. We want to meet those needs, but we do not believe us meeting those needs is the point. It's Jesus meeting their needs. We just open the door through kindness. But the final thing that I want you to notice in this section is that truth matters. In 19, 1 through 7, you have a group of people who were worshiping the Lord, and I want you to notice something that is critical. First of all, one little error can lead you a whole lot wrong, right? 
We didn't know that there even was a truth about Jesus. We didn't even know that there was a Holy Spirit. But I also want you to notice that these disciples were hungry for truth, and what did God do? He puts them directly in the path of an apostle who will teach them the truth and fill their hearts with joy. That's what they find. And, and I want you to see, it says that uh, they didn't know that there was a truth about Christ or the Holy Spirit. Well, well how were you baptized? They traced it all the way back, and he says, oh, you stopped learning the truth all the way back at John. Let me fill you in on a few things that have happened since then. And the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is proclaimed to them. And when they believe that and are baptized, it says the Spirit of God fell on them. Now, I want you to understand something that I think is super important, and we don't have time to unpack it this morning. But the Holy Spirit's activity in this passage is descriptive. It's not normative. It's descriptive. It actually says at this point, and remember, we're in a transition book, the Holy Spirit falls on them. I actually have a a chart that I want you to see Chuck Swindoll has put up, uh, where four different times it says that the Holy Spirit had fallen on those people. In 2, 1 through 4, we see it happening to the disciples. In 8, 14 through 17, we see it happen to Samaritan believers. In 10, 44, we see it to Gentile believers as a centurion comes to, to Christ. And then in 19, 1 through 7, Jewish disciples of John the Baptist uh, who had not yet heard the truth. In each case, Jews were present there. In each case, there's something significant that's happened. Now remember, God gives us the purpose of tongues and the Holy Spirit's arrival in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 21. It says, it's written in the law, I will speak to these people by people of other tongues and by the lips of foreigners, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Speaking in tongues then is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, and specifically unbelieving Jews that had the word of God in their hands. Every single time that we see the Spirit of God fall like this in the book of Acts, it follows that rule. But there's also something interesting that is happening here. Do you remember at the beginning of the book of Acts where Jesus says, you're going to be my representatives, my uh, church planters in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth? Well, do you know this happens four times? It happens once in Jerusalem, it happens once in Judea, it happens in Samaria, and now it happens at a place, Ephesus, that was considered a launching point to the uttermost parts of the earth. Four different times it happens, four different times Christ fulfills his word, and he says it's here. This is happening. The church has arrived. This is the way that I'm going to reach the world. It fulfills prophecy. It's also important to note that every single time that the gospel lands and a new group of people come into contact with the truth about Christ and the Holy Spirit, that when you see tongues in this section and in the gospels, it's to remind you that your culture is not central. Every single person there from every single culture hears the gospel in their heart language. It doesn't say that the Holy Spirit fell and they began speaking in English. Okay? It's not what it says. The Holy Spirit fell and every single culture that was there heard the truth in their heart language. Now, if you go into any of the other major religions around the world, you cannot learn about their religion unless you first learn that home culture's language. You can't translate anything in Islam out of Arabic. It cannot be translated into other languages. That would be an adulteration. You still have to learn about the truth of uh, Hinduism and the Vedas by learning Sanskrit. You can't translate in these other cultures, but God says wherever we go, it's not the culture that's preeminent, it's Christ. Kentucky Fried Chicken is the second largest fast food chain in the world. Look at this yummy meal, and I know some of you, it's a little early now. Normally, at this church service, you're getting ready for chicken. (laughs) But there's something interesting about Kentucky Fried Chicken when you go around the world. Their actual 11 herbs and spices change depending on the culture that they go into. They always have fried chicken, but the surroundings change. 
Uh, if you go into some places in Malaysia or into China, they serve it with rice or with this exceedingly hot sauce. Uh, in India, they actually put the spices into the chicken when you are there. If you go up into England, of course, they make everything bland. It's just mashed potatoes, tasteless chicken. They fry it up and they serve it too, and you look sickly at the end. It changes from culture to culture. What they say is the dressing may change, but the central ingredient must stay the same. Do you know it's true with Jesus? Our culture looks a lot different than when you see Christianity in South America when we go down there and do missions or in those that have gone from our church to Cameroon or into Africa. The culture around celebrates God differently, but the central ingredient is the same. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that sets us free. And it's worshiping the God of the universe in light of that truth that sets us free. Amen? Now, the, tra the trappings come, and they actually give us a beautiful window into how we can celebrate the living God. You do not have a cookie cutter when it comes to culture. You do when it comes to Christ. There is no other option, and truth matters. These folks did not have the truth, and he comes in and he gives them the truth, and it fills them up. It leads them to transformation. Now, we've uh, used up all of our time. This morning, so this is what I would have you consider. Four different ingredients that are critical to a New Testament church. The one thing I want to ask you before we close is which one of these was news to you? Do you believe in evangelism? Do you have a plan for reaching out to those people around you who need to hear the gospel? Do you know that your role in the church is just as critical as anything that happens here on the stage? Are you aware that discipleship matters? Both you discipling somebody, but also you allowing yourself to be discipled. Every single one of us needs somebody to pull us along. And we need to be pulling somebody with us. And finally, do you believe that truth matters? All of these key ingredients are evident, I believe, in this room and we need to make sure that we fan the, those embers into a flame in our own life. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the way that it captivates us. And we do ask that you would help us to passionately follow you. To have the urgency of Paul and the clarity of Priscilla and Aquila. Help us to see those around us. Help us to engage with those around us. Help us, Father, to be impassioned in a way that causes you to be glorified, not us. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Folks, there are questions that go along with this, and I'm encouraging you week after week to find somebody to work through those questions with, to consider how to apply this so that it impacts your feet. Thank you so much for being here this morning. You're dismissed. I believe. I believe in the sun. I believe.